0: So today I want to get back to the series I'm on. I'm in part three of the series on spiritual formation. And today I want to talk about the topic of silence and solitude. And I know when we hear the word silence and solitude, sometimes it's easy to be like, ugh, that just doesn't sound like a whole lot of fun. And I get it. I understand that. But before I do that, I want to talk about the word priorities. Because if you look back, and some of you are going to be surprised by this, if you look back at an English dictionary maybe about 100 years ago, you would not find the word priorities in the dictionary. It simply wasn't there. The word priorities did not come into the English language until about the height of the Industrial Revolution. The Industrial Revolution was at the end of the 1800s, beginning of the early 1900s when America made the shift from an agricultural society, much to much of a more in industrial society. That we went from, you know, we would build things at home, everything handcrafted, to now things are built in factories. So, what happened during that tra- tra- transition from going from, you know, made at home to the factories is the marketplace came up with this word, priorities. Because we had to teach people that work for us. All the different tasks that you had to do, they had to become your priorities. See, before, prior to that, you only had the singular word priority. So we had the word priority for hundreds of years before we came up with the word priorities. And the word priority simply means the prior thing or the first thing. The word priority was always used to describe what is the most important thing in your life. What is the most important thing or what is the most important person in your life? And suddenly, through the Industrial Revolution, we decided, let's have priorities. Greg McKeown, he he's wrote a book about this, I forgot what it's called, but he talks about in this book, he says, you can't change the definition of a word and expect to change reality. It simply doesn't make sense to have priorities by the definition of the word priority. The word priority means you have one thing that your life is focused around. You can't have multiple things that your life is focused around. It doesn't make sense. But what do we do? In order to have more output in the marketplace, we say, okay, we're going to have priorities. And it just logically doesn't make sense when you look at the root definition of the word priority so we can see that shift in what is a priority and what are the priorities has impacted every single one of us. So all of us we talk all the time of what are your priorities? And we'll say Jesus is my priority. You know, my health is my priority. My family's my priority. My my spouse is my priority. My job's my priority. That doesn't really make sense. You can't logically have a bunch of things that are first place in your life. You got to go down and pick just one. And so, as Christians, we all live with this trying to figure out balance all these different priorities that we have. And we say, Yeah, I want to make Jesus my first priority, but it doesn't work well. We have all these other things competing say, Hey, I want to be first. I want to be first. So, suddenly, sometimes your job suddenly becomes first, or your 401k becomes first. And so, we all get kind of scattered in our lives trying to figure out how do I balance my priorities. And fortunately, we don't have to. Fortunately, as believers, we just have to have one priority, and that is Jesus Christ. That's all that we are called to do. Jesus doesn't want us to have a bunch of priorities. Now, there's nothing wrong with putting a value on our family and our job and all that stuff, but that's not called to have a bunch of different priorities, See, some you know is uh, Jesus, when he uh, went into the desert for 40 days and 40 nights. Before he began his public ministry, when Jesus was about 30, he goes in the desert, spends 40 days and 40 nights being ministered to by, by God, all to prepare him for his public ministry. And when Jesus left that time in the desert alone with God, he came forth, and in Matthew four seventeen it says, And from that time on, Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near.'" I talked about this verse a little bit last week, and I want to repeat it a little bit more because this is Jesus' invitation to have one priority in your life. Jesus comes forward and he says, I want you to repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. And we talk about what was Jesus referring to. And I mentioned last week that one of the things that he's talking about is the word Repent. And as Susie mentioned, as we go through this Lent season, we're going to talk about repentance. We're going to talk about repenting for our sins, talking about things that are separating us from God, separating us from moving forward with the things that God has for us. But the word repentance also extends further out to include mindsets. To to, it helps us to look at things of the way we think of things, the way we experience things. And so part of repentance is actually changing our mind. It's not just changing our, it's like changing our mind about our sin and our behavior, but changing our mind to look at things in a different way. See, the Greek word for repentance includes changing your mind. So when Jesus is saying to the crowd, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near, this is what Jesus is saying to them. Jesus is inviting people to live in the kingdom of heaven. He also, also through the Gospels, it's called the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to invite all of you to live in the kingdom of heaven. But in order for you to live in this kingdom that I've come to create, you're going to have to think different. You're going to have to act different. You're going to have to behave different. Because the way things work in the kingdom of God is different than they work on the outside of the kingdom of God. So he calls people to repent so you can live a happy and a prosperous and abundant life in this kingdom of God. So all through the Gospels, Jesus invites people to repent, to change the way you think so you can live in the kingdom of God. Some of you notice when you read through the Gospels, Jesus doesn't give a bunch of lists like don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. He doesn't. Instead, what Jesus focuses on most of his time is how do you live in the kingdom of God? He gives instructions. He gives different values that the kingdom of God has. And it's radically different. To live in the kingdom of God is so different from living outside of the kingdom of God that Jesus has to say, you've got to think different in order to live in this kingdom. So we jump from into Matthew 5, and it's the beginning of what is commonly called the Sermon on the Mount, or it's a sermon on, we call about the Beatitudes, and Jesus is up in front of people, and he's preaching this radical different message. Jesus is talking to the crowd, and he's talking about people, that are marginalized, he's talking about people that are unblessed, he's talking about people that are undesirable, and he's saying to them, you have a place in the kingdom of God. And that is a radical different way of looking at things. Jesus is saying to people, he says, do you want, you want, do you want to be first? You're going to have to be last. That doesn't make sense, but that's the way you live in the kingdom of God. He says, do you want to live? Well, then you're going to have to die. Well, how does that make any sense? But what Jesus keeps calling people is, I'm going to have you live in the kingdom of God. You're going to have to think different. You're going to have to act different. And then in Matthew 5, verse 19, Jesus says, Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the the least of these commandments and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. What Jesus is saying to the crowd, Look, if if you don't follow along with the way that life goes in the kingdom of heaven, it's not going to work well for you it's not going to go good for you at all. You will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But, now this is a good part, but those who ever practice and teaches the commandments will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. It's Jesus' invitation for us to make him a priority in our life. His invitation for us to follow his teaching and to follow his practices. He tells us to practice what he is actually teaching us. And that's encouraging for us because this falls into the series that we talk about spiritual formation. We talk about how do we follow Christ. We've talked about how to be a Christian. Well, we practice the things that Jesus actually tells us to do because Jesus doesn't want us just going to church and, just attend- and occasionally reading our Bible. Our goal of Christianity is that we be with Jesus so we can become like Jesus so we can do the things that Jesus has called us to do. And Jesus tells us when you live in the kingdom of God and you follow these principles he has for us, you'll be with Jesus, you'll become like Jesus, and he can do the things that Jesus has called us to do. And one of our biggest threats that Jesus talked about is the world. And one of the threats that we have is the English language when suddenly we are sitting here trying to make a bunch of different priorities in our life. And fortunately, Jesus was not surprised by the Industrial Revolution. He wasn't surprised that we were going to change the English language a little bit. So in Matthew 6, verse 33, Jesus gives us a good answer for priorities. He says, Look, seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously, and he will give you everything you need. That's Jesus' way of saying, Don't grab a bunch of priorities, just have one. Have one priority and have that be Jesus Christ. And live righteously. And then all these other things that you're concerned about, he's going to take care of them. Goes into the song that Jake had us sing, that just the whole idea, if you just stand still. When you just live in the kingdom of God, you follow what he's done, calls us to do, you live righteously, everything else is going to work itself out. And that's exciting. But as I said, there's always something's trying to compete for first place in our life. And that's why we've done, we're doing this series, why I talked about two weeks ago, the whole idea of a rule of life or having rhythms in your life that you are intentional about putting Christ first. Like intentional about saying, reading your Bible or praying or participating in community or listening to podcasts. We've got to be very intentional about prioritizing our time. Otherwise, the world's going to come in and all these other priorities are going to say, I want to be first place. And then last week, we talked about reading our Bible and how sometimes it can be hard reading our Bible because you look at it like, I don't really understand this. But we read our Bible and we just do it with dependence upon the Holy Spirit that he's the one who's going to reveal it to us. And I talked about last week how when you live in the kingdom of God, look for the king every time you read your scripture. Look for Jesus because the Bible is all about the king. And he's there. And he wants you to find him, so he's going to reveal himself to you while you read the scripture. Even though you might be stumbling, going, "This doesn't make a whole lot of sense." Sooner or later, it's going to make sense. Maybe you'll walk away, and an hour later, you'll be like, "Ah, that's what it means." But just encourage you to read your Bible and to expect the King to reveal Himself. So today, I want to talk about silence and solitude. And I know, again, that's just kind of little words. You're like, "Oh man, here we go now." It doesn't sound fun. It sounds kind of like the repentance. And I get silence and solitude. I get the whole idea of that when you talk about it, sometimes it sounds like drudgery because we do have this problem in the church sometime where we take something really good that God gives us and then we kind of package it in this way of thinking, oh, that sounds very dreadful. And I get it because my introduction to silence and solitude was not a good first-time experience. 24 years ago, I was in seminary. I was at Fuller Seminary in Pasadena, California. So I'm in Central California. My second year, I took a class by a professor, Charles Kraft, and Chuck Kraft. I loved him. He's a great professor. And what he offered the students was one weekend would go on a weekend retreat with him. and It was optional. We went to a, a, a camp. And we would go there, and this class was on inner healing, and it was on, you know, deliverance and freedom and restoration. So I thought, oh, that would be an amazing retreat to go on. So I, I talked, I, you can invite other people. So I invited three of my close friends, and I said, you know, go on this retreat with me. We'll have a lot of fun. You know, we'll have our own cabin. We'll just spend, you know, good time together, and we'll enjoy each other's company. And so I talked them into coming with me, and I all signed up. And so we drive out into the desert of California. I think we're somewhere like Joshua Tree or something. Somewhere. And we get there. It's this cool campground kind of in the little California desert. And so we check in on Friday night, and we go to um, our first meal together. And, uh, you know, there's probably about 30, 40 students there, you know, a bunch of seminarians, so pretty wild crowd there. And uh, <laughs> we sit there, and uh, the person who's coordinating the event, she comes out and very politely says, Oh, I have a little announcement, but, um, yeah, our professor, Chuck Kraft is not able to be with us this weekend. He had something come up with a schedule. And my friends looked at me like, you are an idiot. Because we are coming this whole weekend because this professor you love so much, and now he's not even here. And the the coordinator said, but don't worry, his two TAs are here, his two teaching assistants, and they're going to lead the weekend retreat, so it'll be good. And I'm thinking to myself, this is not going to be good at all, because I know these TAs, this is not going well. And my friends are looking at me like, seriously, you dragged me to the desert for this? That wasn't the worst part. The worst part's coming. So the two TAs get up there. And they just say, hey, you know, we're sorry, Dr. Kraft's not here today, so we don't have the curriculum he was going to teach. So we decided to turn this into a fasting and a silent retreat. (laughs) The next 48 hours, we're going to fast and we're going to be silent. And my friends looked at me like, you've got to be kidding me. So we go back to our cabin. So I'm thinking, okay, I can redeem this. I'm a cabin with my three friends. We will have a talking retreat in the cabin. Get to the cabin. There's some strange other guy there from seminary. They didn't have room for him in the other cabin. They bumped him to our cabin, and he wanted a silent retreat, so we had to be quiet. So the plan was you would fast for 24 hours, would meet together and have dinner together and share what Jesus had done through our day, and then we would fast again to the next evening meal. So fortunately, we we're silent, so my friends can't yell at me. And so we get up the next morning, and you know we start this little fasting thing and the silence thing. And you know, it just sounded so terrible to me. And so I remembered on the drive in that there was a gas station with a subway about three miles down the road. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't a very good seminarian, so I uh, walked on down to subway. And my three friends were there. So (laughs) we kind of had our little uh, retreat at Subway. But see, sometimes I'll tell you, we put that in our mind that fasting and silence is going to be terrible. And I'll tell you, I've been practicing more silence in my time with the Lord over the last year. And I absolutely love it. This is probably my favorite thing to do in my spiritual disciplines just to be quiet before the Lord. And so I'm talking to you about this today because I think it's exciting. But I recognize some of you might be at Subway with your friends going, no way am I going to go there because that sounds terrible. So I'm inviting you today to kind of talk, to to, to to maybe entertain the idea of being silent. And I think sometimes we go crazy with silence. We're like, we go from nothing to 48 hours. You can't do that. You've got to start a little bit slow and the, you know, get break yourself into it. So I want to start. Um, so Dallas Willard, he's kind of one of the... the Kind of a, he was a professor at a university in Southern California, a philosopher, but talks a lot about Christian, Christian life and spiritual formation and following Christ. And he has this brilliant quote where he says that practicing solitude with silence are the most important spiritual disciplines for people today. In our busy, noisy world, we need to unhook and get away in order to be alone with ourselves and with God. And that's kind of the essence of Silence. And you know what? It can be 10 minutes. It can be 48 hours. But it's the idea and the practice of learning how to just get quiet with God. As Dallas Willard said, to unhook, to disconnect from things. And the thing with silence is sometimes you have to go before God without an agenda and do nothing. And that is sometimes hard to do in our culture, to say, I'm going to do nothing. And also try to say, I'm not going to try to produce anything but I'm just going to learn how to sit with God and maybe sit with a psalm or a section of Scripture and just get really quiet and let the Lord even speak to you through what is written in the Word or however God's going to choose to speak to you. But it's that getting really quiet and moving a little bit slow. And as I said, I love spending time in solitude now, but it's, it's hard because you have to learn how to turn down the volume of life. Because life is constantly saying, go do that. You need to do that. You need to be more productive. You could read this. You could do that. And silence and solitude is this beautiful invitation that God gives us to draws us away to say, just be quiet. Be still. You don't have to produce. But to see how God is going to respond and how God's going to enlighten you to even what you might be reading in the scripture I want to read this beautiful quote. It's kind of long by Henry Nowen, but I'm going to read it because it's just that good. So it's, so let me start here. It says Henry Nowen is another leader in spiritual formation. He talks, he's, a, he's actually a Catholic priest, and he talks a lot about solitude and silence, and it's good. So he says, solitude is not a private therapeutic place. Rather, it is a place of conversion, the place where the old self dies and the new self is born. That's, that's essential right there, because I think sometimes people just think solitude is just, just therapy. There's nothing wrong with that, but solitude is to lead you to this place of conversion where the old self dies and the new self is born. In solitude, I get rid of my scaffolding, no friends to talk with, no telephone calls to make, No meetings to attend, no music to entertain, no books to distract me, just me, naked, vulnerable, weak, sinful, deprived, broken, nothing. In this nothingness, I have to to face in my solitude a nothingness so dreadful that everything in me wants to run to my friends, my work, and my distractions so that I can forget my nothingness and make myself believe that I am worth something." But that is not all. As soon as I decide to stay in solitude, confusing ideas, disturbing images, wild fantasies, and weird associations jump about in my mind like monkeys in a banana tree. How many of you have experienced monkeys in a banana tree when you're trying to spend time with the Lord? We all do. I love this quote. Monkeys in a banana tree. Anger and greed begin to show their ugly faces. I give long, hostile speeches to my enemies and dream lustful dreams in which I am wealthy, influential, and very attractive, or poor, ugly, in need of immediate consolation. Thus I try again to run from the dark abyss of my nothingness and restore my false identity in all this vainglory. The wisdom of the desert Is that the confrontation with our own frightening nothingness forces us to surrender ourselves totally and unconditionally to the Lord Jesus Christ? That's where silence and solitude take us. That's where spending time with God takes us, to the place where we completely surrender everything over to Him. But so often in my life, I have those wild monkeys. But also I have the idea sometimes in silence and solitude, I want kind of the, I, I kind of want the, the hallmark Christmas movie where everything is extremely predictable and it all works out at the end just like you thought it would. But silence and solitude isn't predictable. Sometimes God brings up things in your life that you didn't know were there. Sometimes you can't keep your attention because like he said, you have these racing thoughts go here and there. That's part of silence and solitude is working through that and learning how to surrender that over to God. Understanding that your nothingness leads you to complete freedom because you just give it all to Christ. So we see all through all the Bible, silence and solitude, such a theme. We talked about Jesus in the desert for 40 days and 40 nights. All through Jesus' ministry of preaching and healing, we saw him just, like after he did this, a big healing service, he would sneak away and he would go and find solitude by himself. In Mark 6, verse 31, it says, Jesus is saying to his disciples, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. See, Jesus would say to his disciples, he would say to each of us, Come follow me to a quiet place, a place of solitude. See, cruises are biblical. It's right there. And that's Jesus' invitation to us. So we're all by a boat. I'm waiting for someone to come forward. And we see the Apostle Paul did the same thing, that during his life he would spend time with the Lord. So today I want to close and I want to talk about one of my favorite characters in the Bible is Elijah. He's the Old Testament prophet. This man has an incredible career. he has incredible uh, a ministry. he has seen some radical crazy miracles. he's seen the power of God work in a powerful, powerful way. I mean I, you, you would think if you saw the things that Elijah did, you would be you'd have the greatest faith of anybody in the world. but yet Jake, but Elijah he would have this incredible experience with the Lord and then the next day he would be in the bottom. Just discouraged. He would, he could swing from being, just seeing, um, he could seize the powerful hand of God and move, and then the next scene, he's completely hopeless. And in James 5, verse 17, he bounced to the New Testament. I love what it says here. It says, e- Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Saying, hey guys, he's like each of us. He saw God move in powerful ways one minute, and the next day he felt hopeless. I think it's the Bible's permission for us to be human that we don't always have to act like we got it all together. Because there's that tendency sometimes we think, oh, we've seen some big moves of God. We have to just always live at that high place. But Elijah was able to swing to a place of hopelessness. And that's why I love this story. Because it shows us how God responds when we can go from extreme encouragement to a place of hopelessness. So we're going to read from 1st King 19. Now prior to 1st King 19, there's a lot of good stuff about Elijah. You might want to go back and read it because it's a fascinating story about Elijah and all the wonderful miracles that he sees. But when when 1st Kings 19 picks up, you have um, Elijah is a prophet. He's the Old Testament prophet to the northern uh, kingdom of Israel. So he has 10 tribes that he is a prophet to. And these tribes, they are, they're not doing good. They're not following God at all. So God calls him in and says, you're going to speak to these people. You're going to tell them about their sin. Now, the other side of Israel is the south, which is only two kingdoms, two tribes. And uh, they're sort of following God, not doing that good of a job. But Elijah's goal is to help get the 10 tribes of Israel back on track. And so then we have two other characters in the story. You have King Ahab. King Ahab's not, he's king of Israel. He's not really that bad of a king. The problem is he, he, he married poorly. He does not have a good wife at all. And she, um, she's not very good. She's, yeah, not good at all. So you can read about Jezebel if you want. You'll learn a lot about Jezebel. So these are the characters that's going on. So in the beginning of 1st King, Elijah kings 19 elijah is coming off this really high point in his career and in chapter 18 uh, ahab goes to or elijah goes to ahab and says hey there's a lot of sins in israel so you're gonna have to, have to deal with some consequences of your sin and one of the consequences is it's not going to rain for for three and a half years and so elijah just pray and it stops raining for three and a half years and that's pretty serious because again this is an agricultural society you need rain if you're going to grow something so no rain means you're in a lot of trouble so, th- so during that three and a half years, and God, like, escorts Elijah off, and he's living by a brook, and God takes care of him daily. And, yeah, he sends ravens to feed him twice a day, which sounds like kind of a cool story that ravens come feed you. But a raven is it's a big crow with about a 50-inch wingspan. So it's not like the romantic story of God taking care of your needs by a brook you got these big birds coming in and feeding you. So life is a little different for Elijah, but yet Elijah is learning how to spend time with the Lord by this brook and God taking care of him in silence. So three and a half years pass, and now it is time for the rain to be restored. But before that's going to happen, uh, Elijah calls for this big duel at Mount, at Mount Carmel. It's going to be a big competition between Jezebel's God, which is Baal, and the God of Elijah. We're going to see who's most powerful. So they, there's a lot more description here. I'm kind of going through this kind of quickly just to kind of set up the story. So what the goal is, is that the, the people, the Baal worshippers, they would call on their God to send fire down from heaven. And then Elijah would call down his God to send fire down from heaven. And guess what? Baal does not produce fire, but God sends down fire from heaven and burns the sacrifice that Elijah makes. And then next, Elijah prays and it starts to rain. Suddenly, a a three-and-a-half-year drought is over. Now, you would think Elijah would be like, yeah, this is a great day. I've done well. Everything is going well for me. Not so. We pick up in 1 Kings 19. I'm going to read verses 1 through 5. It says, When Ahab got home, he told Jezebel everything Elijah had done, including the way he had killed all the prophets of Baal. So Jezebel sent this message to Elijah. May the gods strike me and even kill me by This time tomorrow, if I have not killed you just as you've killed them. Elijah was afraid and fled for his life. He went to Beersheba, a town in Judah, and he left his servant there. Then he went on alone into the wilderness, traveling all day. He sat down under a solitary broom tree and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life, for I am no better than my ancestors who have already died. Then he laid down and slept under a broom tree. This is a guy who just saw the power of God in a powerful way, and he runs for his life under a tree, and he prays that he would die. It's a pretty dramatic shift. And so what does God do? Does God go up to him and say, Elijah, you're pitiful. Why are you under that tree crying? Why are you whining, complaining? Didn't you just see what I have done? Did God go to him and remind Elijah all the good things that he had seen and participated in? God didn't do that. God didn't scold him. God didn't belittle him. Instead, God revealed himself to Elijah in a powerful way. He revealed himself to Elijah again as the God of compassion and mercy. God didn't scold Elijah for having these feelings of, I just want to die. Life is too hard, it's too difficult. No, God went and showed compassion for Elijah. He fed him. The scripture goes on in verse 5 through 9. It says, Then he laid down and slept under a broom tree. But as he was sleeping, an angel touched him and told him, Get up and eat. Elijah looked around, and there beside his head was some Bread baked on hot stones in a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. Then the angel of the Lord came again and touched him and said, Get up and get some more to eat, or the journey ahead of you will be too much. So Elijah got up and ate and he drank, and the food gave him enough strength to travel forty days and forty nights to Mount Sinai, the Mount of God, where he came to a cave where he spent the night. It's kind of a pretty beautiful story of Elijah so far. You notice the very first thing that Elijah had to do is he had to be honest with God. He poured out his heart and said, I want to die. He poured out his heart to God, and then after he was able to get that off his heart, we see in the story that he was able to rest. You know, sometimes the best way to get good rest is to get that thing off your heart. And Elijah was able to do that that night. He poured out his heart to God, and then he was able to rest. And then God came and showed him compassion. Elijah had no idea. But there God prepared a meal for him and put it right next to him while he was sleeping. While he was doing nothing, God came and took care of his needs. God had to wake Elijah up and say look what I just did for you. And that's the beautiful thing that God does. He just supplies for our needs when we don't even know what he's doing. And God showed him compassion. And then God gave him enough strength so he could go 40 days and 40 nights to make it to his next destination, which is Mount Sinai, which is a mountain that represented God. And then the next thing that God did was he spoke to Elijah. See, that's steps one through five of what God did. And this is kind of a description of what God did with Elijah. And I like the fact that it took until about step five for God to speak because I think so often we want God to speak first. And then we'll follow. But the first thing that Elijah had to do was get honest. And he had to get some rest. You know, sometimes sleep is one of the most biblical things that you can do. We're complex people. We're body, soul, and spirit. And sometimes we need to sleep. I think it's interesting. The Sabbath day starts for the Jewish culture, practice the Sabbath, and it starts the night before on a Friday night with a good meal and some sleep. And sometimes the most spiritual thing you can do is have a good meal and get some sleep and be honest with the Lord. And so then the next thing that happens is then the so the Lord speaks and he says in 1 Kings 19.9, 9, it said the Lord said to him, But what are you doing here, Elijah? See, so notice God speaks to Elijah after 40 days. And now Elijah's gonna share some more feelings. And so Elijah responds in verse 10. And he says, I have zealously served the Lord God Almighty. But the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you, torn down their altars, and killed every one of your prophets. I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. I think it's a very interesting progression where 40 days earlier, Elijah just says, I want to be dead. That's all he can get out. But after the Lord ministers to Elijah a little bit, Elijah is able to express what is really going on in his heart. He's able to express a little bit more than, I just want to die. See, sometimes it's going to take for us to slow down a little bit and sitting with Jesus to finally have the courage to name what is really bothering us. Sometimes we got things bothering us, but we're not even aware of what they are. It's going to take a little time to sit with Jesus to get rid of all the distractions in our life that we can really discover what's bothering us so we can give it to Jesus. But see, so often what we like to do is ignore those undercurrents of feelings. We like to ignore those things that are going on inside of us that are bottled up inside of us. We like to ignore them. But see, God's invitation for Elijah was to talk about them with me. Because see, this is a powerful thing. When you become aware of those things that are inside of you, that are stirring you, that are, that are hard for you, that are just interrupting your life, interrupting your relationships, you can now, in your silence and solitude with God, give them to him. You can give those to him. Psalm 55 says, cast your burdens on the Lord and he will sustain you. And it says the righteous will never be shaken. See, that's what God's invitation is in silence is to cast your burdens on the Lord so he can sustain you. So he can carry you. Because see, that's the beautiful part. If you're trying to carry your burden, it's under your power. But if if Jesus is carrying your burden, it's now under His power, and He has the power to diffuse it. He has the power to delete it, and that's the power of handing things over to Christ so He can deal with them. But it starts with honesty. And so, the next thing that happens is God speaks again in verse eleven through thirteen. It says. God says to Elijah, Now go out and stand before me in the mountains. And the Lord told them, And as Elijah stood there, the rock the Lord passed by, and a mighty windstorm hit the mountains. It was such a terrible blast that the rocks were torn loose, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake there was fire, but the Lord wasn't in the fire. And after the fire there was a the sound of a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and he went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. See, that's pretty powerful and significant. See, in the Old Testament culture, to wrap your face in your cloak was a sign of deep reverence and deep humility. You might remember Moses did that earlier in Exodus when the Lord went by him. He couldn't look at the Lord, so he had to wrap himself in his cloak. And see, what happened to Elijah was that he recognized who God was in a way that he had recognized before. And in that time that he spent with the Lord, he came under deep humility. And he covered himself as a sign of respect, as a sign of surrender. It was a sign of encountering God's presence. And that's what happened to Elijah when he spent time alone with God. He encountered the presence of God in a way he hadn't done before. And this was a huge thing for him. And then in 1 Kings, and then verse 13, it goes on, and then God replies to Elijah again and says, what are you doing here, Elijah? He's asking Elijah again the same question. Why are you asking the same question? Did God forget the answer? We know He didn't forget. Sometimes, when we see God ask a question twice throughout Scripture, what He's doing is for the benefit of the person He's asking the question to. I think what He's doing, and this kind of speculating a little bit, is He's re- helping Elijah to remember how He got into this situation. Because Elijah's going through some restoration in this time in the cave and during this 40 days. And I think sometimes it's easy for us to do when we go through a lot of restoration and healing, we forget how we got in trouble in the first place. And sometimes it's good to remember what got you in trouble or got you onto that place of desperation because that's part of our testimony. See, sometimes we so forget what happened in the past, we forget to be grateful. And see, sometimes gratitude is one of the best things that we can do in our life because it shines a spotlight on what God has done in our life and it reminds us of what God has done in the past to remind us that God will be faithful in the future to keep doing that kind of stuff. And so sometimes the best thing for us is to stop and remember what got us into that place, situation in the first place. So God asked Elijah, he says, why are you here? And Elijah responds with the exact same answers before. He replied, I have zealously served the Lord God Almighty, but the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you, torn down their altars, and killed every one of your prophets. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me. I would kind of expect a different answer, maybe a different perspective. But I think it tells that, but I'm speculating. I think what's happening in the story is Elijah's remembering what got him there. And after Elijah could tell the Lord what got him there in the first place, and then what God does in chapter in verse 15, he sends Elijah on a mission. See, the goal of spending time in solitude with the Lord is to understand more of who God is, who we are, reconcile more to God, come into a deeper level of humility, come to a deeper level of surrender, so then God can send us to do what he's called us to do next. Sometimes we like to stay in solitude and never get out of it. But God, once he's saying to Elijah, okay, you've understood what got you here. You let me minister to you. Let me serve you. Now I'm going to send you. And in Kings, uh, verse 15, it says, Then the Lord told him, go back the same way you came and travel to the wilderness of Damascus. I think it's interesting that God said, go back to where you came. See, sometimes what we do is we go through a hard, hard situation in our life and we say, I'll go back, but I want to go a different way back. I don't want to go the same way I got here because I don't want to be reminded of some painful things that happened in the past. So we have a tendency sometimes to avoid what causes pain in the past and say I'm always going to go a different way. But I just wonder if God was saying to Elijah, you can go back the way you came here because you can go back by those places that hurt you in the past, and you'll recognize they don't hurt you anymore. Because I've done so much restoration in your life that the things in the past that hurt you, they don't hurt anymore. And it took a season for Elijah to be in that, 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 that wilderness for 40 days. Sometimes we just can't go back right away, but after the season, God sometimes sends us back so he can show us that he did really heal us and restore us. But sometimes we just say, I avoid anything in the past because I want to stay away from anything that caused me pain in the past. And God says, Elijah, no, you can have confidence and go back the way you came because that's not going to hurt you anymore. Those things in the past, they don't have control over you anymore. They're not going to do to you in the future what they did to you in the past. Susie opened and talked to you about how the Egyptians will be destroyed. Those painful things in our past will be destroyed. And then the Lord continues on in the, in the scripture telling Elijah, the, the, I'm not going to go there anymore, but just to kind of share to Elijah what you're going to do next. But I want to leave it here. I, want to, I just want us to now go into our time of communion. Because I think it's a powerful, a powerful way to transition right now. Because Elijah spent that 40 days and 40 nights with the Lord and found so much transformation that he could go back to the place he came from. And as we're coming into this season of Lent, and hopefully you can join us on, on Wednesday and if, um, If not, we're going to start a little bit early here. And I wanted for a theme for communion today is the scripture where God said to Elijah, the angel of the Lord came again and touched Elijah and said, get up and eat some more for the journey ahead of you will be too much. And sometimes that's why we come to participate in communion is to remind us of what Jesus has done. And remembering what Jesus has done, it gives us strength for the journey ahead of us. So as we come into this beautiful season of Lent, where we're going to focus on repentance. Repentance of our sin, but repentance for mindsets that don't fit in the kingdom of God. Let us come now and expect when you come up here that you're going to get the same strength like Elijah did when he was sleeping. That God was supernaturally strengthen each one of us for the journey that's ahead of us. Because I know some of your stories here. And you're dealing with hard things. You need to be strengthened. Every one of us needs to be strengthened so we can make it to the place God has for us.